Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. An interesting story. A very entertaining story. Hello, welcome to episode six in our series that delves into the archives of Main Man, the company synonymous with the hedonistic excesses of the early 70s. Dave and Angie had in their bedroom a sort of a sunken bit where the bed was, a bit like a boxing ring, so you could have an audience sitting around the side and watch what was going on. So they were kind of just wild times, people floating in and out. Main Man was a rights management organisation formed by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mop the Hoople, John Mellencamp and David Bowie. And that's when we started doing the most weird kind of musical things like Chim Chimery and uh, Mars from the Planet Suite. So I just didn't know where I was going, but I just knew I was writing. And I had in my head that some idea that I wanted to put some kind of musical thing together. I didn't know what it was going to be. Tony's aggressive promotional and marketing focus helped David transform from a struggling singer-songwriter to rock megastar. We had finished recording Hunky Dory. It had never even been released. And he tells me we're recording the next album, which was Ziggy, and we went in. Before Hunky Dory was even released, we'd started Ziggy. Today, DeFries explains more about the state of the music industry in 1970 when he first met and agreed to manage David. After looking at Bowie's contractual situation with his existing manager, record company and publisher, DeFries suggested a way to improve his circumstances. So with the legal side of the arrangement sorted out, allowing David the freedom to write and record, what plans did you then put in place to improve what David was attempting to do on stage? At that time, the accepted wisdom in the industry was for a new artist or a band to get exposure as an opening or supporting act for an established, successful act. And this was largely a matter of economics because promoters could sell more tickets, generate more revenue and spend less money, which meant they increased their profits on a concert with multiple acts. Record companies would often pay promoters to feature acts and records they wanted to promote. I changed this by funding and promoting Bowie as a headliner without any opening acts. We made the economic model reflect the larger objective of establishing a dedicated fan base to a specific performer. And this changes the perception of the public and the audience to that performer. I also rewrote live performance contracts with different rules. I'm big on rules. This meant including guaranteed non-returnable advances and a percentage split of the gross revenue. And I introduced a comprehensive contract rider with specific conditions for every aspect of the venue. Stage height, shape, location, dimensions, drum risers, the security facilities, equipment, dressing rooms, food and drink, it's interesting to see that in the 1950s and 60s, you began the way that performers wanted to contact their audience changed. And you had all kinds of performers exploring a better way to engage the audience through a more visual medium. This was really an attempt to convey a range of feelings and emotions that 
went beyond the music that you couldn't really get across just by playing the music. And these kinds of things included Jerry Lee Lewis and his flaming piano. He literally set his piano on fire to get the audience pay attention. Jimi Hendrix did the same thing with his guitar and the Who smashed their instruments and wore cloaks and costumes. Pink Floyd had light shows and dry ice. And Iggy simply dived off the stage into the audience. <laughs> this kind of thing was not very disciplined. It was amateurish. It needed to get more theatrical discipline. It needed to become a dramatic structure like a play. You get an audience into a theater, you can change the lights, you can change the mood. You have props and sets and you can fly things in and fly things out. And this allows you to actually get the audience engaged. And this idea of having a narrative on stage with characters, so the performers became characters, and the audience could actually relate directly to not just the performance, the songs, the characters, but also the effects, the costumes, the imagery, the light changes. This wasn't part of rock and roll until we did this with David. What we did was we created theatrical overhead and side lighting. When you look at a stage before this in an open venue, you generally just have two light trees and they'd have lights that you could angle, clumsy, and no overhead lighting. And all the lighting had to be managed, either it was fixed or somebody had to literally come on stage and move it. It wasn't automated. We changed that. We said, we'll make our lighting a customized set that has a crossbar, that has the side trees, that puts most of the lights up above, and then we'll have off-stage spotlights, and we'll make the whole exercise will be made to fit into a set list of cued music and effects. This type of lighting is now used in every major live performance event all over the world. David was immensely talented and confident, but he also was uncertain, sensitive and shy. He could be charismatic, ecstatic and inspiring, or ambitious, ambitious, manipulative and ruthless. In all of this, he was utterly unable to shape his dreams and ideas into reality until I promised to make them all come true. And that was a dream that bound us together like two halves of one person, brothers in arms who created that hero and helped him to conquer the world in an epic tale of struggle and success, never to be forgotten golden years, full of the glory days of triumph and dark times of despair, when we planned and executed every move in the creation and conquest of our hero together. This meant I was his employer, his friend, partner, creator, director, advisor, producer, investor, promoter, and manager. That's a lot of roles to fill. But that was what was needed to take this uncertain and struggling, then obscure and unknown, still unsuccessful performer aspiring to fame and fortune, from this singing mime folk artist into a global rock superstar. In just a few years, and securing the rights to his past and future creative outfit for us to share, which also helped to make it happen. So you sorting out the legal aspects of his career, freeing him up to focus on his art, was that a template that worked throughout your association? 
My involvement with David extended from 1970 until 1996, a hell of a long time, and ultimately until 2016. And during the first two years, I deconstructed David entirely by removing all his personal and professional constraints. So he had nothing that would hold him back. I got to refocus his innate artistic, musical and theatrical abilities. He had that unusual thing of being not just a singer, not just a writer, not just a musician, but an actor and an excellent mime. And this meant that if we could get his musical and theatrical abilities to surface and be effectively coordinated towards a single goal, we could reconstruct a iconic global superstar. And I chose to call that superstar Bowie. Not David Bowie, but Bowie. So you become a Sinatra, a Dylan, somebody who's instantly recognizable. And among the essential elements to do this, to actually fuel this exercise and fund it, you really needed to get complete control of all the artistic, creative, and commercial decisions. This means take away all the contracts that he had, terminate those contracts. I think I was called the terminator sometime for doing this. <laughs> it means that you've got to actually recover all the ownership of all the existing future and past sound recordings, all the songs, all the films, all the photographs, any other rights or works that he has made or will make have to be in a dedicated structure that you can manage, you can protect them, you can exploit them, and you can administer them. This goes to the question of rights, which is way too complex to explain right here. But whilst this was going on in 70 and 71, and I was reconstructing Bowie out of David, during 72 and 73, that's when the icon actually took shape. And here we saw in those early concerts, late 71 and especially 72, here was Bowie emerging as Ziggy Stardust, first of all, but a nascent hero and superstar by 74 or 75. Without control of all these underlying rights that affect the artist, the performer, the music, songwriter, publisher, and name, likeness, reproduction, image. You have many, many lines that are hard to cross. If you can separate all the elements and then control them, you have what Parker did for Presley and what I did for Bowie. And this means going out and securing all the rights that would affect Bowie as an iconic figure. And other examples of this are Walt Disney, who controlled all the rights to his animations, even when he wasn't the animator. He simply made sure that all the animations belonged to Walt Disney. In the same way, Charlie Chaplin, who started making movies as a vaudeville star and a comedy star, and then made those silent movies into talkies. And he was able to do that because he actually controlled the rights to his early films. And so later on, he got to write music for his own films, which was and a unique arrangement. And how did that relationship then evolve over the years that you two worked together? In the early years, David and I had a very close working arrangement and he understood that 
to achieve our goal, all the artistic and creative or business decisions were governed by funding and commercial operations, which meant financial and tax planning considerations that I arranged and managed. Although he was always consulted, many of those decisions were outside of his uh, background information and somewhat complex to explain, sometimes very complex to explain. So all the decisions were made by me and as the pace and the pressure and the complexity of these operations increased and success and fame rapidly began to appear, so did his at first secret and concealed from almost everybody and then later open drug abuse escalate. And as that was happening, he started making efforts to gain control by taking back those decisions. As a result of this, I agreed to take a custodial rights management role as a part owner of the rights during the years from 75 to 96. But even though I'd made David one of the very few artists from that era to own, even jointly, and control his work, and to get an enormous financial benefit from it, he still resented my participation and was unwilling to cooperate in exploiting the rights that we owned together. He wanted to buy out my interests. He didn't have enough capital to do that, and that led to my suggestion of creating what have been called the Bowie Bonds. This was a unique arrangement of monetizing his revenue stream. So all the royalties that came in, all the recording revenues, publishing revenues, performance revenues, movie synchronization rights, all came into one place, which at the moment was shared between us. If he could take all those revenue streams, combine them, established by example of earlier sales that he had a revenue stream of X million a year, then he could go and raise a bond that would be sufficient to buy all the rights back. So we created this as a capital base for borrowing the funds. And once the bond was paid off, so that the interest on the bond, maybe 7% a year, was paid back, all those rights would come back to him. This is how David retained all the rights until his death in 2016. And through the various trusts that were set up as part of that sale, they will have benefit, they as heirs, that is, will have benefit possibly for another 90 years and even longer if terms are extended during the life of those copyrights. So all of those legal proposals put in place in the early years of your relationship, they then proved beneficial throughout David's career? They did. Ownership and control of rights by the creator has an enormous effect on the creative process. Artistic freedom really requires that uh, the process itself can be controlled and the results by the artist or somebody who will work to support the artist's choices. When record companies or music publishers controlled the rights, they could and often did dictate the creative process. And they did this by preventing a songwriter or recording artist who had success in a particular genre, so let's say a jazz artist, 
right. from choosing a different genre because their motive was to profit. And so they felt if we don't take the risk of letting the artists move from jazz to R&B or from R&B to country, there'll be less chance that our sales and our profits would be diminished. And so they would generally rather continue with the same formula, even though it would stifle creativity. By securing and maintaining the rights and the artistic control, I gave David the ability to change musical direction, to change his style, and to use or invent characters to tell these stories that allowed him to become Bowie. And here are some examples. He was Major Tom for Space Oddity. He was Ziggy Stardust for all of the Ziggy Stardust characters. He turned himself into a lad insane. A very nice pun. And actually, the first eight bars of the melody are stolen from a lullaby on Broadway. <laughs> and inspired by Mike Garson, who was a predecessor piano player to Michael Kamen. And that led us to Diamond Dogs, the ultimate tale of a collapsing civilization, a city where rats the size of cats, and diamond dogs wear diamond collars and control the entire town, and humans are being displaced. Wright's ownership also gave him a larger share of earnings and control of his finances. This was essentially the ability to increase those earnings, because over time, if you had put out a recording in the 70s and it sold at a certain price or it was in a certain format, you could now change the format, change the price, recompile those recordings and create new revenue streams. And these factors provided and actually sustained the impetus for an outstanding creative success throughout his career. He was always able, because of this, to revisit and reimagine and recreate a new phase from an old phase that had passed. And this made him exceptionally popular because he was ever-changing, forever changing. And there, I think, lies a lot of his appeal and a lot of his fame. So that's Tony DeFries explaining how the plans he put in place in 1970 when he first met and agreed to manage Bowie allowed David the creative freedom to explore his artistic ambition. In the next episode, Tony actually goes through all the original agreements David had in place and describes exactly how he arranged the complex procedure of extricating David from those contracts. All that paperwork from the Main Man archive is part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man website each week. A fantastic record of a very exciting period in rock history. And you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>